Praise God. That's why I wore my jacket today. I knew we were going to sing that song. (laughs) If you would, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, you really are the source of our strength. We have no hope outside of you, Father. There's no problems that we face that can line up, that can match up with your power. But as each new problem comes our way, we forget how good you are and how big you are, Father. I pray that you would remind us how big you are and how there's nothing that we should fear if you really are who you say that you are. And God, I just pray that you would be patient with us in the meantime while we try to get it. Bless us as we read your word. I pray that, God, as we spend time in your word, that Jesus would be lifted up and we would see him clearly so that we could respond rightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um. There's certain scriptures that you read and certain scriptures that come across that really serve as an anchor for your soul. And when I say anchor, what I mean is that the world that we live in and the lives that we have, it's easy for us to go through life and to feel like we get to these places where the ship just kind of rocks back and forth. We get to this place where the depression and the despair of life just starts to set in so bad that it causes us to question all the things that we know about God to be true. We find ourselves in a place where we constantly do the things that we know that won't make us happy. And we don't do the things that we know that God had said will bring us joy. But we find ourselves powerless in being able to switch and just to change gears and to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. We just kind of find ourselves in this place. And it's in those times that we come and we trust God's word, that there are these verses that are anchors for our soul, that if we'll really read them and engage with them and treat them not just as a rhetorical question that's not meant to be answered, but a question that really is meant to be answered, it will serve as an anchor for our soul. And one such verse that I've read that I've never been able to shake comes in Jeremiah 2.5, and it's God talking to a group of people that would consider themselves his people, and what he says to them is this. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So what he says is he comes to a group that knows all this truth about him that should do the right things and follow him. And he says, what wrong did you find in me? That if you're not walking with God, if you're not following him, it's because there's something that you've seen in him that you don't like, some flaw that he has. And what he does is he sits there and he says, what is it? What was that thing, that flaw that you saw this past week that caused you not to walk with God? Or to feel like that there was some good to find outside of him? It's not a rhetorical question. Think about it. And what takes place is that if we take time to think and really answer honestly, we're going to come to one of two conclusions. The first conclusion that we're going to come to is there was no good reason. I really didn't have one. God, I know all these things about you to be true, and I was just foolish. Forgive me, there was no good reason. Or, if we're really honest, you'll come to a conclusion. You'll sit and say, well, God, the reason why I did this was because you were wrong in fill in the blank. You were wrong in the fact that I didn't get that job. You were wrong in the fact that we didn't get those kids. You were wrong in the fact that I didn't get this relationship. You were wrong, and we can be so convinced 
that we can equate being convinced with being right. And being convinced is not the same thing as being right. Being convinced just means that you're convinced and you may be right or wrong. But if you're convinced and you're right, then that means God has to change, that he's flawed. But if you're convinced and you're wrong, then it's not God that has to change. It's you, it's us. If you find yourself in a place where the doubt has sunk in, when you find that you're at a place where your mind spins with answers as to, uh, to this question, and you doubt that God really is as good as He says that He is, I want you to take heart and know that you're in good company. Not just because everybody in the history of the world has found themselves in this place, but the God that we serve is not just a good God and not just a kind God, but He's a patient God. And so we come to the text here in Mark chapter 8. And most times when you start off a sermon, I remember being in um, school and the one preaching class that I took, they kind of give you this outline to work from, and it's, all right, you want to start with a problem, with a solution, and then you want to go on to an application. What I want to do is I don't really want to start off with the problem right now. I want to start off with just a picture of a great Savior and just let you know Jesus is worth following. Because he turns obstacles into opportunities. Jesus is worth following because he turns obstacles into opportunities. Mark 8, uh, 1 through 10, it says this. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, uh, uh, he said that these also should be set before them. Listen. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dal Manutha. Jesus is worth following because he turns obstacles to opportunities for his greatness every time, no exception. The beautiful thing about this story is if you'll notice, it's a repeat, or it seems like, of one that we've heard. Jesus feeding 5,000 men. But this is not the same story. This is another time where Jesus sees this big crowd, and the first time that he fed the 5,000, the disciples came up to him and said, hey, there's a problem, we need you to solve it. This time, Jesus comes, and the beautiful thing about this compassionate Savior is that Jesus sees the problem before anybody else brings it to him. Not only does he see the problem, but he voices, hey, I have great compassion, and there's something that I want to do. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that in him, we see a great compassion and great capability. And what you find out is that compassion and capability do us no good if, if they're not in the same package. Kids have tons of compassion. And if you're crying, they'll run up to you and say, what's wrong? And it's great, but they can't do anything. 
This people that have great power and great capability, they could change things, but they don't want to. Jesus has compassion, the utmost compassion and the utmost capability, and it's in the same package, so much so that right here, Jesus sees a problem before people are aware of this problem. And Jesus makes plans to solve this problem. His concern for the problems in our life predate our awareness of the problems. And this is why he's such a good God. And this is why he's worth following because he sees us. And even the smallest problems, food for this group, he's motivated to feed them. This is what God does, and it should produce worship inside of us. When I say Jesus' compassion and his concern for our problem precedes our awareness of the problems, I just want to show you all a quick picture of how that plays out. In April of this year, on April the 14th, I'm at a conference with Pastor Richard, and April the 14th is the day that my brother passed. We get up, and we're at this conference, and a good pastor friend of ours gets up to stand and speak at a conference that's geared about heaven. We heard one sermon the whole time that we were there, and it came from this text, 1 Thessalonians 4. 13 and 14, and it says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. The one sermon that we heard when we were there. We're at dinner that night with that guy. And that's when I get the phone call. But if you backtrack the story, what you find out is that the reason I was at that conference was because I was invited to come to the conference with that guy. The reason why I built a su such a good relationship with that guy was because two years ago, I spent a four and a half month sabbatical at his church. The reason why I spent a sabbatical at his church was because five years ago, we got invited to come down to his church for a conference uh, one weekend and we built a friendship there that led towards that the reason why we got invited to come down there was because six years ago a church split in a sense and one person from that church based on all of this bad stuff that went on in that church left from that church and went to his church to learn about the church and he knew us so he invited us to come six years before my brother passed the Lord was already setting in motion how it was that he would care for me. This is the God that we serve. This is what he does, not just once, but all the time. There's a million pictures that could be presented to accent that same truth. There's no obstacle that causes God to throw up his hands. There's a group of folks that come to him and they're in dire need. But at the hands of Jesus, they leave and they're completely satisfied. And it should produce worship. There is no fault. There is no flaw in God that should cause us to feel justified in our disobedience to him. However, we find ourselves being disobedient to him. And so we have to ask why. And here in this story, what we find is a group of folks that think that they see God for who he is, but they respond wrongly. And, and the problem, the one thing that we see here is this. We don't respond rightly to Jesus because we don't see Jesus clearly. The reason why we don't respond rightly is because we don't see him clearly. That if we really saw him for who he was, it would change the way that we responded 
And I'll prove it to you as we, we go through this text with two classes of people. There are those that are forgetful, and there are those that are full of themselves. Look here in verse 4. Verse 4 says this. Jesus sees this crowd, 4,000 people. Last time he fed a, a big crowd, it was 5,000 men. Most folks think that it was 20,000 people with five loaves. Jesus is here, 4,000. He says, we've got to feed them. And look at what the disciples say here in verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. This was a group of folks that was with Jesus that saw him take five loaves for 20,000. So one loaf fed 4,000. Here, they find themselves with 4,000 people and seven loaves, a smaller problem with more resources, and they're just as forgetful. Now, if we look and we stand here and uh, just look at the fact that they were forgetful, you and I will sit here and read and we'll look down on them and we'll say, well, if I was them, I would have remembered that he did all of this stuff, and that's not me. But if we take a step back, and don't just look at that they were forgetful, but if we look at why they were forgetful, what it was that caused them to forget, then you and I won't look down on them. We'll look face to face at them as those in a mirror and be convicted because we'll find out that we do the same thing all the time. And what we see here is this. The forgetful tend to look at their problems instead of Jesus. The forgetful tend to look at their problems instead of Jesus. Hard circumstances are hypnotizing. They force us to forget all of the great things that God has done. And what I don't want you to do is think that the size of the problem is the most important thing. Because if you think that, that that's the case, then what's going to take place is that when you see people that are driven to despair by what you perceive to be small problems, you're going to write them off and tell them to just man up. But if you see, no, no, listen, it's not the size of the problem, but it's the placement of the problem. How close is that problem to your eyes? If it's close and if it's all that you look at, then it can block out the 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 biggest God. There's a guy that said, even a penny can block out the sun if you hold it close enough to your eyes. And the question is, how big is the sun? How small is a penny? How many pennies would it really take to block out the sun? Google says hundreds of billions. But at the end of the day, if you take that one penny and you hold it close enough to your eye, you'll be unable to see the sun and it'll be as if the sun doesn't even exist because your focus is on the problem. Now, how many of us can look at these guys and say we have something in common? One of the most encouraging things is this. Even if you made enough pennies to block out the, the sun and you threw them all up into space at the same time, they'd never make it to the sun. Because the closer that they got, they'd burn up. There's nothing that can really block out the sun. In the same way, if you take all the troubles that ever existed in the world, all the troubles that ever existed in your life, and put them together and hurled them up at God, they wouldn't make it to them. They would be completely consumed. 
there is no problem that he's seen that he hasn't already dealt with. There's no problem that will cause him to throw up his hands and say, I can't, it's just too much. We look at our problems and they're so real and we feel like, no, 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 this time, this relationship, it's going to be done. It can't survive it. This time, this marriage is going to be done. It can't survive this strain. This terrorist attack is going to be the one that does it in. And God says, I've dealt with it before. The problem is not that God's flawed in the problems that he sent our way. The problem is that you and I can tend to focus on our problems so much instead of Jesus that each new problem that comes seems like it's going to be the end of the world. The forgetful tend to look at their problems instead of Jesus. And it doesn't matter the size of those problems. So as we deal with people that find themselves in despair, don't start off and spend the bulk of your time trying to convince them that their problem is small. Try to convince them that their Savior is great. There's a difference. If you try to spend your time convincing folks that things are are small, they can always come to the conclusion, well, you're just saying that because you're not in it. But if you convince them that their Savior is great, then you say it's not just about how small things are. It's that whatever you're looking at is no match for this God because he's done this and he's dealt with worse in the past. And it gives us great compassion because we're reminded that this group of people that were forgetful, even though they were forgetful, Look here at verse 8. Jesus still feeds them, and it says this, And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up more, and they left. Though we're forgetful, though we constantly are unable to recall the greatness of God, He knows that about us. It doesn't grieve Him. He's filled with compassion and pity, and he's constantly ready to remind us of these great truths. What we find out is that there's not just those of us that are forgetful. Those of us that are forgetful tend to look at our problems instead of Jesus. But then we see a class of folks that are full of themselves. And those that are full of themselves tend to see nothing but problems when they look at Jesus. Or they look at him and they're unsatisfied with what they see and they want more. Drop down with me to verse 11 and it says this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, listen, to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said this. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. So what you have here is a group of folks. They come to Jesus, and they come to him with a completely different posture. There's two ways to come to Christ. One, you can come to him with questions. Or you can come to him with demands. There are those that come to him with questions and say, I don't know what I should be doing. Lord, tell me. And these are the folks that would sit at his feet for three days and learn from him and leave completely satisfied. But then there's those that would come to him. There's those that come to Jesus and make the assumption that they already know what they need and they just have a demand that Jesus would give it to them. So here you have a a group of folks and they come and their demand is, We won't believe because the signs that you've given aren't enough. We need you to do more so that we would believe. And everybody that comes to Jesus with these hard demands, you have to do this or else, will find themselves completely unsatisfied with Jesus. And if he's unsatisfied, 
satisfactory, it's because of it, it's, there's only one of two options. If I don't find Jesus satisfying, it may be because there's something wrong with him. He's unreasonable in the way that he answers my re- request. Case in point, a few months ago, I go to this place in town called Antico Pizza. Um, so folks said, this is the best place in Atlanta to go and eat. So I walk in, no, 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 we are not going to amen that. They're the negative picture. So I walk in, I look up at all of what they have, I'm a customer, and I say, I'd like a pepperoni and sausage pizza. And they say, you can't have that. So I say, oh, well, they all must come pre-made. And they said, no, we make them all ourselves. I'm like, oh, so do y'all have pepperoni? They're like, yes. Do y'all have sausage? Yes. Can I get a pepperoni and a sausage pizza? And they say, no. They say no. They, they say we only make certain kinds. So the guy in the back can't just sprinkle some sausage. No. Since that day, I've never been back. Unsatisfied with what they give. I made a reasonable request. And they said no. There are those that come to Jesus with demands, and if he doesn't give them the demands, they see a problem with it. And so they'll be convinced. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong, Jesus, with the way that you do business. Or there are those that come to him, and they find they're unsatisfied with him, And the conclusion that they come to is this. It's not that there's something wrong with him. Maybe there's something wrong with me. If you come to Jesus only to get answers to the questions that you have, you come with the assumption that you're asking all of the right questions. But if you come to Jesus saying, it's not just that I need answers, I don't even know what the right questions are. Those are the type of people that come to Jesus and are satisfied. It would be like me walking into that same shop and saying, I'd like a hamburger with cheese and bacon. And they say, well, here, all that we do is pizza. And I say, but I want a burger. And they say, well, if that's what you want, you're in the wrong place because that's not what we do. All of those that come to Jesus and leave unsatisfied are people that are coming to him for the wrong reasons. Everybody that comes to him for the right reasons leaves satisfied. Only people. The only people that are unsatisfied are those that come to him for the wrong reasons. And in that, they become this self-fulfilling prophecy to themselves. Right? This group of folks are already skeptical that Jesus is who he says that he is. So they come with a posture not to believe in him. And then they come to him and ask him, for something that he's not going to provide, and then they leave and feel justified and hardened in their unbelief because he didn't give them something that he never promised. And any time we try to hold God hostage to an outcome that he never promised, we're always going to leave discontent. And we won't just leave discontent, but we'll leave hardened in our unbelief. This is why as you go through in the Gospels, in the book of Mark, what takes place is Jesus comes on the scene and nobody knows who he is or how they should treat him. There's a group of folks that say 
based on the things that you've done and said, I'm going to follow you. And only those that follow Jesus get a chance to see him clearly. There's folks that come and examine him and put him up to the test. And those folks are never endeared to Jesus. But by the end of the book, they're the ones that want to kill him. Only those that come to Jesus for the right reasons are going to be sad at this fire. But the problem exists here. None of us see him clearly. We don't respond rightly because we don't see him clearly. So even a good explanation is not going to help us. Look here at verse 14 and I'll show you how this plays out. It says this. So they get through all, all of this. Jesus, up to this point, has fed 5,000 with 20 loaves, or fed 20,000 with five loaves, fed 4,000 with seven loaves. And verse 14 starts off and says this now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them. So Jesus is just giving this word of caution and warning. And he says this, watch out, beware, right? That same phrase twice. This is really important. Watch out and beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, right? It's confusing in itself. We'll get back to what that means. 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they're like, man, Jesus is mad at us because we don't have enough bread for us. And Jesus looks and what he says this. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, y'all got to be kidding me. Y'all got, you got to be joking. There's got to be a camera around here or something. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did, did, did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did, did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? What he does is he comes at, at them and his big concern, their main problem, the reason why they don't respond rightly is that they don't see Jesus clearly. They miss understand all the things that he says. And what you'll find out is that a caution and a warning does you no good if you don't understand what's being said. There was a commercial that, that, that came on years ago um, of, of a German guy sitting at his um, submarine control center. And he gets this call, um, and it's this distress call. And they say, help us, we're sinking, or we're sinking, we're sinking, help us. And he sits there, he doesn't really know what to respond, and he presses the thing and he says, what are you singing? They said, we're sinking, we're dying. And because he didn't un understand what was said, he thought that they said they were singing. And so he responds to this nonchalantly. And if that really plays out, then what takes place is the one person that could really help them doesn't help them because there's this misunderstanding that goes on. Jesus looks at this group. He's giving them this explanation of what to look out for. And what takes place is that his caution is good. It's a clear roadmap, but there's a problem. And do you know what that is? 
He's putting a good roadmap in the hands of blind people. And if you give a roadmap to somebody that's blind, regardless of how good the map is, they're never going to reach the destination. They become selective listeners. As Jesus is saying, yo, beware of the leaven of, of the Pharisees of the yeast. What yeast is, is this stuff that you put into bread and you just need a small bit. And what takes place is you mix it up into bread. And when it uh, bakes, when the heat hits it, it rises and it takes over. There's a group of folks, the Pharisees, right, that are full of themselves, that have this set in their mind that they know all of what they should know. They have it set in their mind that they know what it is that Jesus needs to provide for them in order to make them happy and whole. And they're not going to be swayed by anything that God says. They're saying, I know what I need. Give it. And the more and more that the heat in life hits, the harder and harder these hard times come and we don't get those things that we think that we know that we should have, it takes over and it hardens us in our unbelief. And Jesus is telling them, watch out. Be very, very careful that a forgetfulness can lead to faithlessness that hardens into ultimately a rejection of God. When misunderstanding takes place, one of the things that you see here in this text so clearly in verse 16, Jesus gives them a caution and they start to talk amongst themselves and they think that it's a rebuke. When we don't see Jesus clearly, words of caution seem like words of condemnation, like they put us, like they push us away. Right? This is why people that are unfamiliar with the character and the grace and the love of God, when they come face to face with statements that Jesus makes, statements that God himself makes about the way sexuality should be practiced, and there is a way that is right, and there is a way that will earn God's judgment, they'll say that's hate speech, that's condemnation. And, and we'll say, that's not. If you view that as hate speech, then you don't know my God. When God wants to destroy somebody in the Bible, he just does it. When God doesn't want to destroy people, when he doesn't want them to experience the consequences of their sin, what he does is he warns them. And he warns them with very harsh language that's compassionate. But if we don't see God clearly, we're going to misinterpret the things that he says. Here is a deadly combination for relationships. If you're prone to misunderstand, but you're quick to jump to conclusions, you're always going to have bad relationships. You're always. Because what's going to take place is you're going to be quick to conclude in a matter that you're wrong in. And you're going to be convinced of it. And you are going to be convinced of the fact that there is a flaw that's not there. And it's one thing if it's just in a person, because people have flaws. But if you're convinced that there is a flaw in God, that's what we call sin. That's what leads into all sin. The way that Adam and Eve in the garden was led into sin was that Satan came and said, this word of caution that God gave you, it's not because he wants what's best for you. It's because he wants to keep good from you. And you're going to have to go outside of what God says to find some type of good for your life. And, th and they chose sin. And every other sin that we commit in this life comes from a failure to see God rightly. And if we don't see him rightly, we're going to interpret his words wrongly. 
And so what takes place is that even right and good words are put in the hands of blind men, and it does us no good. But do you know what God's perfect law does? Paul says in the book of Romans that it builds up this case against us. God has been clear. He's provided us the right way. You and I have been convinced that we're not blind and that we could see. We've gone the wrong way. We have offended God because of our sin. We have to pay the price for our sin. And paying the price for our sin is it ends up actually being the very thing that we chased for with our sin. Trying to find life or wanting life apart from God. And what takes place is there is no life apart from God. Life apart from God, existence apart from the presence of God is hell. C.S. Lewis says that at the end of the day, there's going to be two types of people. Those that look to God and say, thy will be done. And those to whom God looks to and says, your will be, be, be done. And all of us that live lives looking for existence apart from God, what takes place is we're going to find it. God's going to give us that. That's the punishment that we've earned for our sin. And it puts us in a place where we feel kind of hopeless because our eyes are blind even though we have a great road map. But here's the beauty of this story. That at the end of the day, Jesus exposes their big problem is that they don't see God Clearly. And after he exposes this, look at how this ends in verse 22. It says this, and they. So all of them, Jesus and the people that followed him, and they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Here's the hope that we have, but here's a, a disclaimer for us to embrace. Jesus opens blind eyes completely, even though at times he does it gradually. Jesus opens blind eyes completely, even though at times he does it gradually. What takes place here in this story is Jesus comes and there's this man who has eyes but cannot see. A picture of the spiritual condition of those that have been with him, that have seen all the things that God has done in the past, that can recount it all with great details, but can't connect the dots. And he finds this man. And what he does is he heals this man in two stages. And it seems odd, right? It seems like, Jesus, are you getting... Old, can you not do, do this on the first time, right? When things get cold out, outside, when it gets really, really cold outside and I get into my car, I've got to crank it up once and it goes and it gives a good try and, and, and then it stops and I've got to crank it again and then it comes up. Is that what takes place here? No. You look at all the miracles that Jesus does in the Bible and all of them are instant. All of them take place at once. This is the one time where the miracle that he does is in stages. 
In the Bible, Jesus is the only one to heal blind men. Showing us God is the only one that can give sight to the blind. And that's an encouragement for those of us that find ourselves spiritually blind, unable to see God clearly. And Jesus starts off and heals this man. And he says, do you see anything? And the guy says, I see this world, but it's unclear. And that should be an encouragement to all of us in here that find ourselves in a place where it's like, all right, God, I see, but it's not clear. I think that I see you, but I'm, I'm, I'm discontent with what I see. And I know it's not a problem with you. I know it's a problem with me. But at the end of the day, I still can't see clearly. And so I'm going to find myself making choices and coming to conclusions that I shouldn't come to. And here's the beauty of a patient Savior. Is that he doesn't get frustrated and get up and leave. He sticks around and he stays and he ensures that the good work that he started in this man, he's going to be the one to complete it. And that should give great comfort to you and I who constantly find ourselves in a place where we're so discontent with the things that we see in the Lord. When it seems like he's not big enough to take care of our problems. When it seems like he's not compassionate enough to take care of our woes. I had a professor in school that would say all the time, and it stuck with me, he said this, what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model for what he will continue to do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. God's past mercies, like Spurgeon would say, are promises of new ones. For all of us that find ourselves in a place where we just can't seem to do right because we don't see the Lord clearly. He's purchased for us clear eyesight on the cross. There's three people in the book of Mark that look at Christ and say he's the son of God. The first one is God himself. The next one is Peter. Only after Jesus talks about his resurrection. And then the last one is a Roman centurion, a pagan, who once he sees Jesus on the cross dying for a crime that he didn't commit, and the curtain of the temple the thing that was meant to tell people there is this distance in between you and God when Christ died on, on the cross it says that that was torn in two and split and you see this pagan look up at him and say surely that was the son of God like we talked about two weeks ago Jesus doesn't want to be known apart from his work to save sinners and it's in that that he shows us That God is not just trying to give us a road map. God has always been in the business of progressively revealing him, himself. He's provided the road map so that you and I would come to the conclusion that we're blind. That what we don't need, we don't just need somebody on the outside trying to give us an explanation of what to do. We need somebody that's going to patiently bear with us and open up our eyes. And this is what Jesus does in his grace. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I who constantly find ourselves not being able to see? The very first thing that it means is that the harder it is for us to see Jesus clearly, the more fervency we have to have in the way that we run to him. If we don't see him clearly, that doesn't give us an excuse to stay away. If we don't see him clearly, it's an indicator that we need to pursue him more fervently. And we pray. And so many times when we say we pray that he would change us, we don't realize prayer is hard work. But it's hard work in the right direction. It's humbling work. 
It's saying, God, I'm going to work as hard as I can to remind myself that I don't have the power to change myself. And so I pray and I plead and I ask that God would help me to see him clearly. That the answer is not, God, just change my world. The prayer is, God, if only I could see you more clearly. Help me to see you more clearly. And the beauty of this is that when we pray and we ask God to change us and to help us, and he does graciously and gradually open our blind eyes, we're reminded that it didn't come about by our strength. So when we find people in our lives that we're impatient with, People that we wish would just get it. It doesn't drive us to pride, but it drives us to prayer. Prayerful people are patient people. Prayerless people are very impatient people because they've come to the conclusion that somebody just needs to work as hard as I have and then they'll see the results that I have. No, 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 no. If we're blind and there's only one person that can heal the eyes of the blind, It drives us to pray and to ask for God graciously to do it. And in the same way that God fed the 5,000 and he'll feed the 4,000 and he'll feed those that come to him, is the same way that God has healed those that have been spiritually blind in the past and will continue to do the same thing. You're not the first one to come to God with that problem. And what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model for what he will continue to do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. We're grateful for a patient God that bears with us even in the midst of our forgetfulness and faithlessness. Let's pray. Father, um, we ask that you would just continue to bear with us, Lord. Remind us of what Um, a blessed assurance that we have and that even in the midst of our failures and our frailty, you won't leave us, you won't forsake us, but you'll journey with us, Father. And so I pray that you would give us the grace to come to you, not with demands, but with questions, Father, with requests, just asking you to be gracious to us. And above all else, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by the progress that we see and not discouraged by the fact that we're not where we hoped that we would be by now. Father, remind us that it's a slow process and a slow work, but we can bear with a slow process and a slow work because we have a faithful Savior who we know will complete the work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand.